one of the things that all of us hate is all of us hate to feel as though we have been judged. One of the things that we can't stand is the thought of someone else looking at us Seeing maybe something that we've done, maybe seeing just what is our outward, uh, outward appearance allows them to see. And them giving an assessment, assessing us and seeing what they see and then passing some type of judgment in an attempt to maybe define us or perhaps to corner us or, or to maybe even lower us in the eyes of others. And I think the reason that we don't like that, I think the reason that that's kind of a thing that universally all of us hate is because all of us expect them to judge us as harshly as we judge everyone else. And so we project onto them the same spirit of judgmentalism that we ourselves know reigns in our own minds and in our own hearts and in our own conversations. And so, we go to this verse that we're going to be in this morning. One of the most misquoted verses in all of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, which says, Judge not that you be not judged. Right? And we do that because we don't like that. But I think in that we see something, don't we? In that, that, that... We see our own hypocrisy and how badly we hate to be judged, and yet how quickly we are to judge other people, how fast we are to do it, how easily and how natural it comes to us. This morning, we're going to be jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount to finish up uh, the sermon, and we're going to be going through the next few weeks, Matthew chapter 7. And so, if you have your Bibles, if you'd stand with me as we open God's Word together. As we come into Matthew chapter 7, what we're going to see is the shift in the conversation. Jesus is going to begin talking really explicitly about a number of the relationships that we have here on this earth. So beginning in verse 1, it says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, eat when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Now I think the first thing that all of us need to kind of ask here is, why does Jesus give this instruction within the sermon? When we've talked about when we started all this up that really the main audience of the Sermon on the Mount is not really... The, the people out there, there, the crowd, those that are kind of outsiders, know the main audience of the Sermon on the Mount are the disciples, those that have been walking closely with Jesus, those that are following Jesus, those that have devoted themselves to Jesus. And so very practically what we can say is that all of us who now follow Jesus, all of us who now have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, that, that he is talking very practically to us. So in the, in the framed up with that and understanding who he's talking about or talking to, why is it that Jesus felt it important to give us this command, judge not? 
See, I think Jesus understood, I know Jesus understood, much better than the way that we understand the nature of our own sinfulness. The nature of our own depravity. The nature of our our own bent toward uh, doing all the things that are corrupt and messing up things that are even taking really, really good things and taking them and reshaping them and turning them even into bad things, right? And so think about what Jesus has been teaching throughout this sermon. Throughout this sermon, Jesus has been saying, give your money to the poor. Jesus has been saying, control your temper. Turn the other cheek. Jesus has has told us that that we are to pray for our enemies. That we are to pursue and hunger and thirst for righteousness. What Jesus has been calling us to is a radical life. What Jesus has been calling us to is a a transcendent life, a life that kind of rises above what we see in society. A life that kind of rises above what what is natural for us and what is common in the world that we live in. A life that rises above all of the sinfulness, that goes countercultural, not with the flow. And what Jesus understood about the human heart. What Jesus understood about the nature of my heart and the nature of your heart and the nature of all of his disciples as they continue on living in this flesh is they, he understood that the tendency could be that as we attend to live this transcendent life, as we attempt to live against the flow, as we try to live out these radical things, that we can have a tendency, now this is going to surprise you, to stand over everybody in this self-righteous pulpit And to look down our noses on other people and other sinners as they struggle through this life. That we give to the poor, so look how bad you are and look how good I am. We we pray for our enemies, so, so look how good I am and look how bad you are. We are going to rejoice in persecutions. And so we aren't worried about that. So so look at what a martyr I am and what a coward you are. Jesus knew that one of the struggles of the human heart, one of the ways that the human heart would take this very good teaching and corrupt it, is that it would lead to pride in the hearts of some of his disciples, and it would lead to to self-righteousness in the hearts of some of his disciples, and, and cause them to look down their noses at other people as though they are any better than them, as though they are perhaps less worthy of God than they are. And so Jesus is not going to speak unclearly here. Jesus sometimes speaks in parables. Jesus sometimes speaks in in the abstracts. Jesus sometimes says things that we have to sit and ponder for a second to understand what he's talking about, but not here. Not here. What does he say? Don't judge. Don't judge. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. Like, I don't know about you. You graduate from White Place High School. You can read that. You got that. Don't judge or you're going to be judged. Don't judge. Now I think it's important, as I told you earlier, this is one of the most misquoted verses in in all of Scripture. This is one of the verses that that is famous on Facebook. Like this is Facebook famous, right? You put this verse as soon as you get home and, and just, I guarantee you, you get like 75 likes. People love this one. Judge not. Judge not that you not be judged, man. Boom. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Amen. I don't even like the Bible, but I like that. And so it's important for us, knowing that, to kind of have some context, to understand what it's not talking about. First of all, what this is not doing is, this verse in no way is an, 
attempt to allow us or cannot be used in, to justify our own sinfulness, to justify our own resistance to accountability in our lives. If you use this verse to try to let yourself off the hook in your sin, if you try to use this verse to keep from being confronted in your sinfulness, you're doing a disgusting thing with the word of God. The word of God is never to be used to justify our own sinfulness. All that is is a fool trying to justify his foolishness. Trying to feel better about what he knows to be wrong in his heart. And so as we come to our word, we, 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 should, be, we should tremble at the thought that we could take that which is intended to, to move us to holiness. That which is intended to, to build godliness and cultivate, cultivate godliness in our lives. That we might use it to excuse our sin. In fact, it's the opposite of what Jesus is talking about in this passage. What Jesus, is not what Jesus is talking about in this passage is not of trying to let yourself off the hook of your sin. Instead, to deal severely with your sin. So we can know it's, that's not what he's talking about. We also know that what he's not talking about is that we should never make a judgment call when in, in regards to our relationships with people. We know that because throughout the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of the things that Jesus has told us to do require us to make a judgment call about other people. Just read verse 6. Verse 6 says, um, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. In other words, don't, don't throw godly things in front of those that are just going to trample them. Well, that's kind of offensive language, but... For a disciple to live that out, they've got to be able to clarify who's a pig and who's a dog, right? Jesus is going to talk about false teachers. Jesus is going to talk about those that, that are opposing him. Those, he, he tells us that we're to have a, a godliness, remember, that is greater than that of the Pharisees. All of those things require our judgment. Us making a call, a judgment call. So that we might live out God. And so that, that's not what he's talking about, clearly. Matter of fact, as uh, John Stott says, that it's our mental faculties, our ability to reason, our ability to, to have rationale. It's, it's our ability to do those things that is one of the distinctive characteristics of being a human. And God would never tell us to defy that which he has instinctively placed in us like that. And so we know that's not what he's talking about. He's also not talking about using this as some kind of way for us to figure out how to never confront sin in the church. We read Matthew 18, we read 1 Corinthians 5, and the scriptures are clear that there are times that we're to, to discipline one another as, as believers, that we're to, to live in an accountable community with one another so that we might confront one another. After all, it's not love to just avoid sin, right? It's not avoid just to pretend like there's no sin in the church or just to pretend like there's no sin in your brother's life. That's not love at, at all if you just ignore it to the point that it allows them to self-destruct. No. The scriptures are clear there are times in our lives in which we must confront the sin in others out of love, out of care for them, with the desire that they be reconciled with the Lord, that the, with the desire that they be reconciled with the church family, with the desire that they, they experience correction in a way that is redemptive and in a way that is helpful and in a way that models the gospel. And so we know that none of those things are what he's talking about. So what is he talking about then? I think what, we, what Jesus is talking about here is Jesus is talking about this self-righteous, prideful, judgmental, fault-finding spirit that so many of us have in our hearts. All of us, very likely to some degree. 
It's, it's that, that part of you, in, inside of you, that when you see somebody walking down the road, you immediately just dismantle them in your mind. It's when you, you hear the news of, of trouble in somebody else's house. And there's almost a part of you that says, I knew it. I knew it. I knew they weren't as good as they said they were. I knew they weren't as godly as they always pretended to be. I knew it was all a front. It's that part of you that when there's somebody that kind of rubs you the wrong way, you look at them and you try to find every flaw in them so that you can make sure that you don't have to like them. It's that part of you that tries to build yourself up and make yourself feel good by tearing down everybody else. And so you make yourself look better in your eyes by making everyone else look bad in your eyes. That's the kind of spirit that Jesus is coming after. And I think there's really two words that can kind of help us, that, that kind of help us understand exactly what he's talking about. I think the first thing, the first word that we might use to characterize this kind of spirit in someone's life is the word petty. The word petty. Notice what the person sees in the other eye, right? He doesn't see a log in the other person's eye. What does he see? He sees a speck. A speck. Something small, something, something minute, something, something tiny, something that, that's even hardly noticeable. In other words, he's, he's seeing that and he's, and he's finding the smallest things in their life and he's seeing those as, as a means through which just to, to pick them apart. And so it's seeing everything and it's, it's picking at this and it's picking at that and it's picking at this. Every little sin, every little flaw, every little mistake, every little shortcoming, it, it's seeing those things and it's exaggerating them and it's exacerbating them. How petty can we be? How petty can we be? I think that's one of the things that disgusts people about the church and probably rightfully so. Is even among the church... Even among God's people, even among God's children, we can, we can be so petty with one another. We can be petty with one another and we can be petty with, with unbelievers on the outside. We look at people and, and maybe it's the clothes that they wear and immediately what does our mind do? Oh my goodness gracious. Woo, what have mercy. What side of death did she walk off of, right? Are we... See the way that they carry themselves? Oh, no. Nah. We hear something they say at work. It can be just as something as petty as the color of their skin or the part of town that they live in, the house that they go home to. It can even go down to the very personality that God has given them. And yet we take them piece by piece by piece by peace. And as a person, as a person that Ephesians tells us is a masterpiece in the hands of God himself, we take them and we completely dismantle them over the smallest things. Not only can we be petty, though, we can also be harsh, can't we? It can be harsh. And it goes close with pettiness, but it's kind of its own category, too. Notice what he says in, in verse 2. He says... And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. The measure he's talking about there is a judge that makes a judgment. And the measure of punishment that is given over to the person in light of the crime they've been convicted of. In light of the judgment that has been passed down. Man, how harsh can we be? 
how we, how we see people, and we, we see these petty little things, and yet we don't do that. We don't go and offer them grace. We don't go and offer them forgiveness. Instead, we offer them condemnation, and instead, we try to crucify them in our own minds, or we try to crucify them within our social circles, or we crucify them when we get into the car to go home. Because we're harsh. Well, if you find in your heart a spirit that is judgmental, a spirit that is petty, a spirit that is harsh, we better heed verse 2. Verse 2 gives us a warning. Let's read, it. Let's read it together. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That Jesus says to his disciples... That this, 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 this heart, this, this petty heart, this, this harsh spirit, this, this desire to, to find faults in everyone and to dismantle them in front of everyone, or even in your own mind, that as petty as you are, and as harsh as you are, you can expect that when you stand before the great judge one day, he will be equally as petty and equally as harsh in his judgment of you. You see, it's a terrifying thing to be a judgmental person. It's a terrifying thing to be a judgmental Christian. It's a terrifying thing because all of us live in the midst of this reality that we will one day face judgment. Now let me ask you, brothers and sisters, as you stand before the judge... As you stand before the one that doesn't just see what he can see on the exterior, that doesn't just see what is made public, but sees to the very heart of the man, the the soul of the person, that, that knows every thought you've ever had, that knows every action you've ever done, that knows what you do in the quietness of your bedroom and in the place that you work, that knows all of that. When you stand before him, naked and exposed, how do you want him to judge you? Do you want him to judge you with pettiness? Do you want him to judge you with harshness? Do you want him to dismantle you piece by piece? Because trust me, you give him plenty of ammo. Or, do you want him to look at you and say, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You have been forgiven. What measure of grace do you want? What measure of grace do you want in your judgment? What measure of grace do you want in your flaws? What measure of grace do you want in your unfaithfulness? What measure of grace do you want in your sin? What measure of grace do you want when you stand before the judge? Jesus says it is this measure with which you should show to others. It is with this type of grace, it is with this grace that you should demonstrate to them so that when you stand before him, he might emulate your grace toward you. You see, it's a disgusting trait for a Christian to be judgmental. It's a disgusting trait because it means that your heart is hardened toward the reality of who you really are. It's a disgusting trait for a Christian to be judgmental because it means that you have lost sight of the wretchedness of your own life. It means that you have lost sight of just how deep in despair you were when the Father reached his hand down to you through the Son and delivered you from your sin. It's a disgusting thing because you must have forgotten what a sinner you are. 
It's a disgusting thing because you must have forgotten how, how flawed you are, how in need of grace you are. And so you are so unwilling to show it because you yourself don't see the need for it. Do you remember how badly you need grace? Do you remember how flawed you are? Do you realize that you are capable of any evil outside of God's grace and outside of his providential hand? None of us are above another. And those that don't have Christ are not less worthy of him than we are. We are all equally deserving hell. We are all equally deserving to to reap the consequences of our sin. But by God's grace, we have been delivered. We are not better than any of them. So Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that, that you not face a judgment that is similar to that that you demonstrate to others. Now when he gets to verses 3 through 5, I think he, he kind of really just kind of points and pin, pins down what this is and what he's coming after here. One of the things that we know that Jesus hates is Jesus hates hypocrisy. And through, throughout his conversations with the Pharisees and his rebukes of the Pharisees, he will often call them a, a, a hypocrite. What does he call his disciples that live this way? Verse 5. You hypocrite. You hypocrite. You hypocrite. How can you stand on some self-righteous pulpit? How can you stand in some, some elite status Christian and look down on everybody else as though you yourself are not a sinner? As though you yourself have not been preserved by my grace? As though you yourself don't need forgiveness? How can you do that, you hypocrite? And I think we see two things about the nature of our hypocrisy. The first thing that we see about our hypocrisy is that it is self-deceiving. That it is self-deceiving. Notice what it says. This is, and, and Jesus, he speaks with humor here, all right? And, and so when Jesus is talking, this would have almost uh, elicited laughter from among the disciples because this is so preposterous, this is so outrageous that this is absolutely impossible. But the, the picture is very clear. Verse 3 says, why do you see the speck, the sawdust? He very likely could be saying this close to a carpenter shop. Why do you see the speck or the sawdust that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log or the plank or the, the, the four by four in your own eye? Now this is the opposite of the way that we see our sin, isn't it? He says, how do you not see how big your sin is and how small their sin is? You're, you're, you're obsessing over sawdust, and yet you're, you're ignoring the four-by-four. You're ignoring the log in your own eye. Now, how do we usually see our sin in relation to the sin of others? We usually see our sin as being small and the sin of others as being big, don't we? Here's what we do. We excuse our sin, right? If, if you were confronted in your sin or probably as, you, as the Spirit convicts you of your sin, here's what you will say, well, I was just having an off day that day. I was just having a bad week. I had, I had not gotten a good night's sleep that night. I had, I had maybe skipped breakfast and, you know, like, like, I have this thing with my blood sugar. So, like, when I skip breakfast and I don't get my banana, I just kind of come all unhinged on folks. And so, so it, was just, it was just I had not eaten a banana that morning. Or, well, it was just one time, you know? 
It, it, was just, it was just one time. I just kind of did this thing this one time. Like 95% of the time, 98% of the time, 99.999% of the time, I get this thing right. 99% of the time, like, I'm, I'm faithful. 99% of the time, I'm, I, I don't do what is wrong. It was, it was, it was just like this, this one little moment of weakness. Or, well, like nobody really knows about this. Like I'm not damaging the testimony of my church. I'm not shaming my family. So, so, so really all I'm really hurting is myself. And so it's really not that big a deal. And so what do we do? We take our sin and we try to minimize it, don't we? We take our sin and we try to shrink it down. We take our sin and we excuse it. But what do we do with the sin of others? We exaggerate it, don't we? So we excuse our sin, and at the same time, we exaggerate the sin of others. We see their sin, and we say, can you believe what they did? Can you believe that they would do something like that? Can you believe what he did to her? Can you believe that, that he kind of fell off the bandwagon like that? Can you believe the way that they have fallen? So with us, it's, well, it was just. And with everybody else, it's, can you believe that? This is why in Jeremiah chapter 17, it says that our hearts are exceedingly wicked. That our hearts are deceitful. They deceive us into being convinced that our sin is no big deal and everybody else's sin is a deal breaker. And so we, we are built up in our own minds because we don't compare ourselves with the righteousness of God. We don't compare ourselves with the holiness of God. We compare ourselves to everybody else. And so as long as the sin in our life seems to be smaller than the sin in everybody else's life, we believe that we're doing okay. We're believing that we're walking down this narrow path. And so the nature of our hypocrisy is that it's self deceiving the other thing i think we see is that it's self-blinding it's self-blinding notice that throughout verses one through five what do we see we see that there is a seeing problem for the christian here there is a seeing problem for the disciple this is what he says right he says in verse three he says why do you see that that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye so you you see their speck but you don't even notice this log in your eye. See, what, what's interesting about that language, do not notice, is that it's not really deliberate deception, is it? It's just kind of ambivalence. It's just kind of like not paying attention. It's just like you're, you're just blind to it. You're, you're unaware that it's even there. That, 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 that your heart has so deceived you, that your heart has so convinced you of your goodness that you don't even see how flawed you really are. You don't even see how broken you really are. See, one of the things that sin does for us, or does to us, is sin kills our self-awareness. I probably don't have to convince you that we don't live in a very self-aware world. If you just turn on American Idol, and you see some Yahoo coming on there who believes he's going to be the next, you know, Mick Jagger. And man, he just lets it rip. And it sounds like somebody's sacrificing an animal in the middle of a hailstorm. You think, you know, 
there's a brother that doesn't have much self-awareness. That's a brother that needs some friends in his life to come and put their arm around him and say, hey, you just can't sing. You just can't, like, does nobody love him enough, right? But the truth is, is that all of us are terribly unaware of ourselves. This is why we have trouble in salvation. This is why we cannot come to salvation on our own, is that we are dead, and yet we don't know that we're dead. It's that we're blind, but we don't realize our blindness. It's that we are sinners, and yet we don't realize our sinfulness. This is why the Holy Spirit has to come into our lives and has to convict us of our sins and draw us to the Father. He has to awaken us to our own deadness. He has to awaken us to our own sinfulness. He has to awaken us and soften our hearts so that we might realize, I'm not good enough. I need the Lord. And that you, so that we might reach our hand up toward Him. This is why I'm guessing. For all of you that have been saved, all of you that have come to faith truly in your life, that salvation was in part a devastating experience for you. Because what the Spirit has to do is the Spirit has to come into our life and He has to to remove the scales from our eyes so that we might look into the mirror and see ourselves as we really are. See ourselves as being as inadequate as we really are. See ourselves as being as weak as we really are. See ourselves as as being as bad as we really are, as wretched as we really are. And so the Spirit has to, to reveal these things to us, in a sense, tearing us down, so that then He might point us to the gospel, so that He might point us to the Father and say, but there is glorious news. There is good news. You aren't good enough, but He is. You are too weak, but He isn't. Come to Him. Now why is this disgusting in the life of a believer? Because it means that you've gotten to the place in your life where now your heart is hard to your sin again. It means that you've gotten to the place in your life in which you are again hardened to the moving of the Spirit in your life. That you are again hardened to the reality of your own badness. That you are again hardened to to the reality of your own need of grace. See, your salvation experience is probably the first moment of true self-awareness that any person has in this life. And if a Christian drifts from that, if a Christian goes away from that, they forsake the salvation that they've been given. And one of the truest symptoms of that hard heart is judgmentalism. It's pointing out the flaws in others. It's being petty and being fault-finding, being harsh with them. So Jesus lands this On verse 5. And this is really the point I think he intends for us to get. I think this is really the point that he intended for his disciples to get that day. Verse 5. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we see here, again, it is not that we are not to help our brothers with their sin. You are to then be able to do that. Once you see clearly, once your seeing problem has been resolved, once you have broken through the blindness, once the Spirit has revealed all of these things to you, then you go and help your brother. But first, before you help your brother with the speck, before you help your brother with his struggles, first, remove the log from your own eye. First, remove the sin from your own life. 
first, deal severely with your own sinfulness. I think that's what he's getting at here. That before a Christian can help another brother or sister deal with their own sinfulness, they must deal severely with their own sin. That there must be repentance in their own heart. We typically think about repentance, I think, as this kind of one-time event. We think about this moment in which we're lost and we're hell-bound and we're going and we're kind of living our own way and we go and we pray and we seek the Lord and we throw ourselves on the cross and then we're delivered and so we begin going this. And that is certainly the picture of repentance. But what we must all remember is that all of us will be sinners until we are taken from this earth. And so repentance is not a one-time experience. It's as we walk down this narrow life, an ongoing spirit of repentance. It's living in daily repentance, in daily acknowledgement of our own sinfulness, in daily acknowledgement of our need for the Lord, in daily acknowledgement that, that we need His help. It's confessing our sin over and over and over. It's acknowledging the filthiness of our own lives over and over and over. And it's calling on the grace that is found in the cross over and over and over. Let me ask you, Christian. When was the last time you were devastated over your sin? When was the last time you were moved to tears over your own wickedness? When was the last time that you, you fell on your face before God to plead with him for grace and mercy? Because whenever that was, that was the last time that you really got the richness of the gospel. Whenever that was, that was the last time that you really worshipped the Lord in spirit and in truth. Whenever that was, that was the last time that you really were able to, to wrap your minds around the deepness and the richness and the glory of your own salvation. You see, once we deal severely with our own sin, we'll deal gently with others about their sin. There won't be pettiness. There won't be harshness. Because it'll all be framed up in our own wretchedness. It'll all be framed up in our own neediness. It'll all be framed up in our own desperation for grace and for mercy. And so it's, it's going to the Lord and it's pleading with Him for grace. And then it's going to our brother and our sis or our sister and, and helping them to experience grace in that way. See, it's, it's interesting there that he does, he, he uses the language of a brother, doesn't he? And then when you see, well, you see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, your brother. That you're not a judge on a throne, you're a brother, elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder. You're to help people with the specks in their lives. You're to help people by, as you live life with them, as you live in community with them, as you, as you sharpen them and as they sharpen you, they're correcting you and you're correcting them. And there's this, this mutual accountability that's, that's happening in your lives. Your brothers, your sisters, you're in this together. One's not supreme, and one's not better than the other. No, they're, they're, you're both sinners. You're both in need of grace. You're both in the same family here. And it says when you do that, when you remove the log from your eye, when you deal severely with your own sin, then, then you will see clearly to help others. See, what we need to do is we need to cultivate repentance in our lives. We need to cultivate repentance in our lives so that our hearts might be softened toward others. 
We need to cultivate repentance in our hearts so that we might be sorrowful of our own sinfulness. We need to cultivate repentance in our lives so that we might be even more desperate for grace, so that we might even more so enjoy God, so that we might even more so be filled with worship toward the one that has delivered us from such sin. And as a, as a Christian matures and as a Christian grows, there's, there's two realities that happen at the exact same time. You, you become more and more convinced of how big God is, and you become more and more convinced of what a sinner you are. And so as this happens, remember what bridges the gap is the cross, right? And so as you begin to understand your sinfulness more, and you begin to under, understand God's enormity more, all that happens in your life is that the cross becomes more magnified. So in your heart, as you begin feeling yourself being judgmental, you feel that pettiness coming up in you, you feel that harshness coming up in you, you know what I think would be a wise thing for us to do? Why don't we begin recounting the commandments we break most often? God's, Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is that we would love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. Not with 95%, not with 97.5%, not with 99.9%, but with 100% that we would love him supremely with everything that we had. How well do we do that? He says that the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves, Not give our neighbor our leftovers, not give our neighbor a few extra minutes, but to want for them the same standard of living that we want for ourselves. To want for them what we want for us. Do we do that? Scriptures tell us to do all things without grumbling. How well do we live out that in our lives? The scriptures tell us to redeem the time and to, to not waste a second, to, to not be lazy. How well do we do that? And so as we go through these sins that are so common in our lives, it is not for the purpose of making us live in perpetual guilt. It is to make us live in the midst of perpetual understanding of grace, perpetual understanding of the goodness of God, and in worship. And so as we pray for our own grace, as we recount our own sinfulness, perhaps we would pray for our brother. Perhaps we would pray for our sister as they struggle with their sinfulness. Perhaps then that would take us off of our self-righteous throne and put us shoulder to shoulder with them. Not so that we can point our finger at them over their sin, but so that we might wrap our arm around them and weep together over their sin. That's the difference. See, the landing point for Jesus is the landing point for this morning. How do you want to be judged? How do you want to be judged? Do you want to be judged with a great measure of grace and mercy and forgiveness? Or do you want to be judged with pettiness and harshness? This morning, I pray that you would be devastated over your sin. I pray that this morning you would be devastated over the pettiness in your life. That perhaps today you would repent. This morning, if you don't know the Lord... I offer you to one that whatever you bring, whatever speck, whatever log you bring to the table, he is going to take it and he's going to take it from you and he's going to cover you with his righteousness. Come to him this morning. If you want to be a part of this fellowship, there's two ways you can do that. You can come down front and, and grab Aaron or I and just and, and tell us that and we'll do it, set up a time to talk later. Or you can come to us after the service, send us an email or whatever and we'll set up a time after the service for us to discuss membership, being a part of here at Iron City. But however the Lord moves in your life today, I pray that you would respond. Let's pray this morning.
Heavenly Father, forgive me for the judgmentalism in my own life. Forgive me for my own brokenness. Forgive me for how often I'm petty toward others, how, how unwilling I am to show them grace, and how badly I want you to show me grace. Lord, help me to not live as a hypocrite. Help me to not live as one that, that wants grace but will never offer grace. Lord, help me instead to live as, with a spirit of ongoing repentance, with an acknowledgement of my own sin, with a realization of my own need for you. God, this morning, would you break our hearts over our sin? Would you bring us great degrees of self-awareness so that we might know how badly